Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com, the number one adult toy superstore on the internet, and then when you're at the checkout, enter the offer code TMPP. That's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, and you'll receive 50% off. So go to adamandeve.com and enter the offer code TMPP. Once again, that's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. One of the most captivating things that's happened to me over the course of this uh, six-week quarantine is that I've become a big fat fuck. I go to the bathroom every morning, and I stand in front of the mirror, and I get on my tiptoes, and I hover there for a moment to imagine how cool it would be if I were tall, and then I drop down onto my heels, flat-footed, and I watch the oceanic tide of ripples move over my body. And as I watch it, I move with it, and I say, yes, yes, piggy, good, very good, piggy. (laughs) I tell myself this is happening to everybody, that we're all stuck inside, we're making too many trips to the fridge, mainly out of boredom, Um, and then when we we do go into the outside world to, to sort of experience some semblance of normalcy, the only place we can go is the grocery store. I'm soothed to think that I am one of many succumbing to this fate, but then... I see some of my friends on Instagram doing yoga with their cats and their infants, looking great, making videos of their phenomenally colorful, no-stress vegan cuisine. So apparently it's not happening to everybody. Most of us, though, are for sure going through this same thing. To give you an idea of how this newfound flesh is hanging on my body, imagine if somebody threw a lot of pizza into a tree, and then the clouds cracked, and there was a great cosmic moo whereupon milk began to rain onto the tree-strung pizza dough. That's how my body looks right now. And the reason I mentioned my physique is because it makes for an even more striking contrast against these fitness documentaries, which I've been kind of binging during the quarantine. Not like those 30 for 30 documentaries on ESPN, where they chronicle like the career of a major athlete or some famous sport scandal from the sports world. What I like are documentaries about underdogs, which I think is universal. Um, But I also like endurance athletes. Um, Like there was one I watched last year. I can't remember the name. Um, I think it was only like an hour long. But it was about a woman who wanted to be the fastest to ever traverse some famously treacherous hiking trail. She would have to run something like 200 miles in four days, something like that. The only things I really remember from from that one in particular are that one, she didn't achieve her goal, and two, there was this scene where her journey was like particularly bad, and all through her hike, she was being followed by like a caravan of friends who would camp at a place where she was supposed to stop for the night, and then they would feed her and she would sleep in the truck bed, whatever. Well, after one of these particularly bad days, she comes stumbling out of the woods into the campsite and she's losing it. She's wailing, sobbing, she's speaking incoherently. And as I was watching it, I was like, jeepers fuck, she's gone mad. But then one of the people in her camp was like, oh, her blood sugar is low from all the exertion. So she's sitting in a truck bed and she's like weeping hysterically, she's saying crazy things. And then they give her one sip from a can of Coke and she immediately calms down and starts giggling and she's coherent. But anyways, that that was that's the kind of documentary I really like. I also like the stuff about bodybuilding though, and like the national CrossFit games and the powerlifting stuff. I'm compelled by how disciplined these people are. I love portraits of like disciplined obsession. 
This weekend I watched two of those kinds of fitness documentaries. One was a portrait of a famous gym in Columbus, Ohio called um, Westside Barbell, which is an invitation-only powerlifting gym for strength trainers. And it's famous for being grungy and intense and for grooming a number of uh, record-breaking powerlifters. The iconic owner of that gym, his name is Louis Simmons, is now in his 70s, and he is fucked up from the ravages of a repeatedly broken back and a snapped kneecap. He's also got breathing issues now as, a, as like a tangential result of the knee injury. You see, this guy, Louis Simmons, is allergic to anesthesia, and when he went in for surgery on the busted knee, he told them, I'm allergic to anesthesia, whereupon an oblivious anesthesiologist shot him up with anesthesia. So Simmons' throat started closing before the operation began. The doctors had to perform a tracheotomy that fucked up his trachea, so that now, in his 70s, he can't sleep for more than like an hour at a time without his throat kind of lapsing shut, and he like sputters awake, choking. So Louis Simmons, this, this tatted guy who brags about the fact that he's only got 13 teeth left in his mouth after a lifetime of fighting, he's a poorly rested septuagenarian with lots of physical pain. And he's finding, as the documentary is, is showing, he's finding now that he can't roughhouse with the powerlifters anymore. He can't engage in, like, the ritualistic, adrenaline-fueled, celebratory shoving matches that, that take place after somebody's just broken their personal record in the weight room. One of the softer-spoken threads in the documentary is about how it's becoming clearer and clearer to an aging Simmons that he isn't what he used to be, and, by merit of no longer being what he used to be, it means that he isn't one of the guys anymore. In Louis Simmons, at the age of 70 or 71, or whatever he was at the time that this was filmed, I think I find the figure that I'm always thinking about when I watch these movies. Because there's a definite glory to being strong and fast and athletic. You get a certain amount of deference and respect in the world for manifesting the qualities of a great athlete. And part of it, I think, is because of something Arnold Schwarzenegger used to say, uh, which is that a great physique is one of the only things you can't buy. Like a full or beautiful head of hair, or a sleek and elegant chin, or nose, or neck. All of that shit can be medically or surgically augmented, even your waistline. But to be muscular, and toned, and swift, and strong, these are attributes that you cultivate only with serious work. And people know that, if only intuitively. But, these properties do kind of belong, for the most part, to youth. You know, it's not like you're the economist, or the lawyer, or the dentist, or any of the many, many other kinds of professionals where a person gets better as they age. Yes, the professional strength trainer, or bodybuilder, or endurance athlete will learn to train smarter as they reach middle age, but they train smarter for two reasons. The first reason is because they've been doing it for a long time, and they've learned a lot. The second reason is because they can't very well train harder than they did 10 years prior. You never reclaim the vigor and strength, the resilience of your youth. And so part of what I find interesting about these documentary portraits of the people who train for these kinds of professions is that they are crushingly aware of the clock, after a certain point at least. I think it's fair to say that a lot of the guys in their early and mid and sometimes late 20s behave as though they have an eternity of powerlifting ahead of them. But most of them seem to realize the truth of their situation fairly early on. The fact that they have to crunch a, a career's worth of training into just a couple of decades. Because yes, there are records to be broken in your 50s and 60s and 70s, but if you want to break world records for like the heaviest bench press or the heaviest squat or powerlift, you're not going to do that at the age of 55. But let's say that you do accomplish one of these things in your 30s. You break one of these world records, and you're celebrated and remembered as the guy who bench-pressed a thousand pounds, or whatever, whatever the number may be. But then, a decade goes by, 
and now you're 45 instead of 35, and you can't really bench that much weight anymore. You're still very much on the powerlifting scene, but you're not benching a thousand pounds like you did in your 30s. And now some kid comes along, and he's talking a lot of shit, and he puts in the hours at the gym, and he benches 1,080 pounds. Suddenly this guy is the title holder. For all that the casual observer cares, he is the strongest. He is the best. Your own accomplishment, as the guy who once upon a time benched a thousand pounds, is washed away from the public eye. Because when it comes to the world stage, you know, once upon a time, the greatest bench press was 800 pounds. And then the next guy benched 822 pounds. And then came another guy 10 years later who blew them all about out of the water by benching 850. And on and on and on. All of those guys enjoying the accolades of their time and of their circle, but none of them lasting on the record. What I guess fascinates me is that the achie your achievements in strength training just kind of, they belong so much to the moment. So I'm obsessed with the Rocky movies and they capture this same thing. There are currently eight movies in which Sylvester Stallone plays the heavyweight boxer Rocky Balboa, and those movies span 45 years in which we see him go from a 20-something amateur to a sickly old trainer. And this thing I'm talking about here with respect to having a, like a moment of glory is captured perfectly in the ending of Rocky, the first movie. Because at the end of that movie, even though he's lost the big fight, he has the love of his life, Adrian, run into the ring with him. He's surrounded by reporters who want to tell him what a great job he did. The spotlight of the world is on him. And the woman he loves just jumped into his arms. And then we get a freeze frame. And Stallone said that the reason the movie ends on that freeze frame is because, the way he saw it, this was the greatest moment of Balboa's life. Balboa the boxer had reached his crescendo, as athletes tend to do when they're very young. And every pleasure and every success that would ever come after this moment would exist in the shadow of this moment. But we all want to be recognized, so we do our thing in public. And what's rough about being recognized and celebrated for your youthful attributes when you're in public is that should you remain in the spotlight, people are going to watch you lose those attributes. They're going to watch you slowly become less than the figure that they fell in love with. And that little morbid reality is captured pretty painfully in a, another Netflix documentary called Ronnie Coleman the King. Ronnie Coleman is a bodybuilder who won Mr. Olympia, the highest decoration for bodybuilders, eight times, which was unprecedented. There are all these videos online of him hurling freakish amounts of weight and shouting, Lightweight, baby! He had all these gimmicky sayings and he was kind of a clown in the gym. That playfulness, however, was all the more charming because you knew it was a mask for like unfathomable discipline. And now, at the age of 55, Ronnie Coleman, once upon a time, the most remarkable bodybuilder in the world. Eight-time Mr. Olympia champion, he is now crippled. He's had more than 10 back surgeries in recent years, due in large part to the compression on his spine from years upon years of freakishly heavy weightlifting. And now, given his refusal to stop training at the age of 55, there's a good chance that Coleman will be functionally paralyzed in the next few years. He posts Instagram photos and videos that show him at the gym in the pre-dawn hours alone, talking about how he can't stop, won't stop, all that rah-rah shit that seemed to mean so much, you know, a dozen years ago when he was at the top of his game. But now you see that it, like, it elicits concern from people in the comments section. During the pandemic, he's been posting videos of himself at his home gym, and there's one where he's leg pressing a couple hundred pounds and while the overwhelming majority of comments 
from his 3.4 million subscribers were telling him in a number of languages that he remains an inspiration to them and they've got such great memories of when he was at his peak. Aside from all that, there are more than a handful of concerned voices in the comment section saying, please stop and you're killing yourself and this is so bad if you just had lower back surgery. And you have to imagine, like this guy, remember what a clown he was in the gym, even though it was masking, you know, that that monstrous discipline, now his playfulness in the gym must be masking whatever it is that a champion must feel when he goes from hearing all these hosannas about how he's the greatest ever to suddenly hearing like, you're gonna die, please stop. This is kind of a morbid topic, I know, but it fascinates me because, because it shows how these guys have to kind of move the goalpost at a certain point. And what I mean by that is like, it's wildly ambitious, but not completely ridiculous for a young adult to say that their goal in life is to become the strongest person in the world. Somebody is going to be the strongest person in the world, so why not be that person yourself? It can be done if you're willing to make the sacrifices and live up to the challenge. What you cannot tell yourself, however, what nobody can ever tell themselves, is that they are going to remain the strongest person in the world. And what I think these documentaries explore so powerfully is how some of these athletes sacrifice so much in order to achieve what they're aiming for, but it also shows how they have to live with the subsequent fallout. Sometimes the fallout is from the fact that they didn't achieve their goal, and sometimes the fallout is from the fact that they did achieve their goal, but the glory is bolted down to its moment in time, and they'll only ever get farther and farther away from it, inexorably. There's a part in that documentary, West Side vs. the World, where one of the strength trainers says in the most cavalier way, and I totally believe him, that he says that most of the guys in this gym, if you told them that they could beat their personal weightlifting record in exchange for shaving a couple years off their lives, they would do it in a heartbeat. Like, there was one guy that they show in the gym, and he says that his goal is, to, I think he said his goal is to lift 2,000 pounds. And it's the kind of goal that, like, if you, if you do it, if you lift 2,000 pounds, then fine. You go away, <laughs> like, you, you get it done, and then you spend the rest of your life being able to fondly look back on the fact that, like, hey, I had this personal goal, and I achieved it. If you say you want to be the strongest man in the world, however, that's something that you, that's a status that you attain and then lose. And it's because your goal is something relational. You're aspiring toward a goal which is defined by your talent in relation to other people, in relation to competitors, if that makes sense. What I'm saying is that it's, it's healthier, I think, maybe, to just have like those very personal goals of like, I'm going to lift 2,000 pounds for my own benefit, and I know that's not a world record, but it's a personal record. But yeah, I was wondering if like achieving public greatness in this kind of sport only makes the downward slope steeper and more painful. Because I watched another documentary on Netflix that same weekend called Beyond the Mat. I think it came out in 1999, and it's about professional wrestling, Ma mainly the World Wrestling Federation, WWF, which has since become World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, uh, because they were constantly getting confused with the World Wildlife Fund. So the documentary focuses on WWF, but it also covers some of the fringe wrestling leagues, the more brutal stuff like ECW, which is kind of like backyard wrestling, where, where dudes who are clearly very strong, but don't appear to be in particularly good shape, they're literally beating each other with barbed wire and two-by-fours and chairs in order to entertain a live audience of 100 people. And it's almost like something out of Dante's Purgatory. In these horrifically violent fringe leagues of wrestling is where the up-and-coming young wrestlers end up mingling with the former celebrity wrestlers who are on their way down. These older guys who are hanging around in the profession longer than their bodies really should allow. So this documentary about wrestling, Beyond the Mat, gives us a portrait 
of one middle-aged wrestler in particular, Jake the Snake, who basically rose to the heights of pro wrestling glory, and then he succumbed to all the hedonism that major celebrity invites. He got into really heavy drinking, started smoking crack, and there's this one particularly haunting interview. He's, uh, he's talking in a hotel room over some bluesy jazz soundtrack. It's late at night, and he appears to be high or something, and he's talking to the filmmaker about how his celebrity as a pro wrestler made it almost impossible to have sex with his wife because he says you go on the road you get some kind of fame all of a sudden you can have sex every day then all of a sudden you want to get selective one a day isn't enough and then you do two a day then three a day then two at a time then two at a time with toys then two at a time and i'll just watch and then it gets more and more bizarre and then it gets to a point that you go home and you try to make love to your wife and there just ain't no way there ain't no way the documentary features some gentler portraits of aging pro wrestlers, but it doesn't look like this fame is something that most of them relinquish all that willingly. They cling to it. They hang on longer than they should. And that's going to be something of the theme for this week's episode is knowing when to step away from something. Or, alternately, when to go down with that ship. Like, when I look, for instance, at Ronnie Coleman, the great bodybuilder, former Mr. Olympia, who's now basically crippled, and I see him going to the gym at 4 a.m. He's 55 years old. He's had like a dozen surgeries on his fucking spine. And he's being told he's never going to walk again if he continues to work out. And yet, he continues to work out. There is no question that a huge part of what is fueling Ronnie Coleman toward these suicidal workouts is vanity. A fear of aging, a fear of obsolescence, or of spending the rest of his life in the enormous shadow of the Superman that he once was. But I'm sure that a really big part of what drives him into the gym each day is that he really does enjoy being in the gym. It's his profession, yes, and it's his brand, but it's also his hobby and his passion. So I'm interested in these documentaries because I love portraits of extreme discipline, like watching these bodybuilders and strength trainers eat like exactly one cup of rice seven times a day and half a cup of carrots and then you know they wake up at 3 a.m. so they can eat two fried eggs and drink 16 ounces of water and go back to bed. But I also find this shit really instructive because it shows you what it looks like when Ahab finally comes face to face with the whale that he's been chasing. Invariably, it seems, almost invariably, in one way or the other, like Ahab, he goes down with it. And I think that in their portraits of how these people are subsequently uplifted or broken by their pursuit of a certain goal, by their pursuit of greatness, these fitness documentaries prove instructive when it comes to the question of weight. Just weight in general. The stuff that you can lift and the stuff that you simply can't. This isn't founded on any kind of research, but I really do suspect that people stopped buying playing cards once there was free porn on the internet. I was commiserating with my friend Pavel Klein the other day about how I'd recently discovered the online store Etsy and how it's destroying my life because I keep shopping for movie posters and art prints and various things to decorate my room. 
Pobble was saying that he also sometimes goes on Etsy and looks at things that he wants to buy but should not buy. Like, for instance, he said there was a, a deck of Tron-themed playing cards, and Tron is his favorite movie. And so, in a moment of weakness, he added those cards to his shopping cart, and they've just been sitting there for weeks. And he knows that he's one bubbly mood away from making this purchase that he shouldn't. And so I said, well, when was the last time you played a card game? And he conceded that it had been a very long time, and I said, I know it's been a long time, because nobody plays card games anymore, and they probably didn't enjoy it when they did. And I told him what I just told you, that people probably stopped playing card games once they could sit at their computer and watch a man get fucked by a horse. And he asked me how I came to that conclusion, and I said, look, people in the 1940s playing card games were playing card games for three reasons. One, they have a gambling problem. Two, they're elderly. Three, they're bored. Are you going to tell me that all three of those camps, the bored, the addicted, the elderly, aren't going to be drawn to internet porn like a moth? And my friend Pavel Klein was like, nah, I still know people who play cards. I know plenty of people who play cards. And I was like, yes, I'm sure you know plenty of people who still play gin, rummy, and cribbage, but I'm also willing to bet that they all have limited mobility and, like, vivid memories of the Ford administration. You know what else I'm pretty sure plummeted in sales? Ball in a cup, the yo-yo, the Rubik's Cube. Are you going to look at all these obsolete adolescent toys of yesteryear and tell me that they weren't outlets for fap-happy young boys whose parents were like, our son's penis is going to bleed, get him a yo-yo? Because I remember in middle school, every now and then there'd be one kid who was like a yo-yo prodigy. And that kid was always weird. And he, he appeared to always be on the cusp of violence, all of them. I remember this one kid named Francis in particular who was the greatest yo-yo prodigy I'd ever seen in my life. This was in seventh grade. He would do yo-yo tricks all day, and he wouldn't even look at what he was doing. He would just zip-zag and zigga-da-boo-bob the yo-yo while staring at the sun. And everyone was like, oh shit, he's not even looking at what he was doing, like he was part of the trick. It wasn't part of the trick. It's because he was possessed by the spirit of Onan, the demon of self-touch. My second cousin at the time was an English teacher at my high school, and one day uh, she had to do a bunch of administrative shit, and so during second period she was like, okay guys, here, just watch a movie and she put on the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring one of her students sitting in the back took this opportunity to recline as far as he could in his desk then he opened a textbook in his lap and he started jerking off and nobody noticed not because they were oblivious the reason they didn't notice is because teenagers are such fiendishly addicted masturbators that the compulsion to ejaculate inspires them to da Vinci caliber feats of cleverness and innovation. Never will a young man show you more courage, recklessness, stupidity, and brilliance than when he is propositioned with an orgasm. But so this kid's jerking off in class, Lord of the Rings is unfolding up on screen, and everything is going on as usual. Other students in the class went on to say, oh, I had no idea he was jerking off because, yeah, he had the textbook in his lap and his hands were in the pocket of his hoodie, but he seemed to be totally focused on the movie. And you know what? I don't fucking doubt it. And I don't even think that it's like he had he had a thing for dwarfism or hobbits. I think it's just that, again, teenage boys are so hell-bent on jizzing that almost, almost in the way that like a great comedian looks into the gaping maw of tragedy and finds humor, so does a young man peer into the abyss of something as deliberately sexless as the Lord of the Rings and finds something, something he can eroticize. But so this dude finishes yo-yoing his cock, he somehow gets himself back into his pants after orgasming, and then he goes up to my cousin's desk, and his hands are clasped uh, together in like a pleading gesture, and he says, uh, can I go to the bathroom, please? And my cousin says, uh, sure, sure, just, just give me a minute with the pass. Because remember, she's busy at her desk doing all this other work, so she's going to take a minute to get around to writing him 
a hall pass. But so the dude stands idly by her desk for a minute, basking in the glow of his orgasm, his hands clasped in a, in a sort of plaintive way in front of his waist. And so he turns to a young woman sitting nearest the teacher's desk, and he says to her, Psst. And so she looks at him, and he brings up his clasped hands, and he opens them up, revealing to her the pool of jizz that he'd caught and was planning to go and wash away in the bathroom sink. Well, she screams, of course, and recoils, and in her recoiling, she slaps his hand away, whereupon the jizz is made airborne. Anyway, the kid got expelled, which may be... I, I could see how that part is actually a sound argument for bringing playing cards back. Speaking of these ventures where guys devote the entirety of their lives, or at least the entirety of their youth, to one major pursuit, I spent the month of March rereading the four-book Hannibal Lecter series by Thomas Harris. The first volume, and probably the best of the bunch, is Red Dragon, which came out in 1981. Uh, in 1988, he released a sequel, Silence of the Lambs, and about a decade after that, he released the concluding volume, Hannibal which was followed nearly a decade later by a prequel called Hannibal Rising, in which we learn that the famous, genius, hyper-educated serial killer Hannibal Lecter, known for his elegance and eloquence and charm, was, as a young man, a vengeful, gun-toting, Nazi-killing vigilante. It's horrible. Those first three books are great, though. The series is well worth reading so long as you skip the fourth one. Now, unless Thomas Harris was publishing other novels under a different name, which he may well have been doing, this Hannibal Lecter series comprises pretty much his entire life's work. Just four books between 1981 and 2019, just last year when he released um, a new novel called Carrie Mora. Each of the first three volumes in that Hannibal Lecter series is, as I've mentioned, a masterpiece. A few years after Hannibal came out in bookstores and was quickly adapted to the screen by Ridley Scott and movie producer Dino De Laurentiis, De Laurentiis had the rights to continue the film series, however, he, in any way that he pleased. He owned not only the series, but he owned that character, Hannibal Lecter. He wanted to at least try to incorporate some of the original talent, though, so the story goes that he called up Thomas Harris, who had always been very sensitive about whether the film adaptations of his novels were any good, and Laurentiis called him and said, I'm gonna make uh, the prequel with Hannibal Lecter. It's gonna be a baby. He's gonna fight crime with Nazis. That's my Dino De Laurentiis impression. If you look up Dino De Laurentiis on YouTube, you'll find that it's not... I don't think it's horribly far off the mark. Basically, he's... <laughs> Basically, he said to Harris, in a friendly way, you can either come aboard and write a prequel novel that I will adapt for the screen, or I'm going to hire my own writers and go my own way with your creation. And so, Thomas Harris, who was probably wearied by the prospect of a movie in which Hannibal Lecter fights Hitler, decided to accept the invitation, and he wrote Hannibal Rising on his own with uncharacteristic haste. M that book does have a few of the glittering sort of flashes of the same master touch that pervades its predecessors, but the last third of that book, uh, it, it reads like, it literally reads like somebody wrote it in a weekend. Promoting his most recent novel in 2019, Thomas Harris said to a reporter in the courtyard of the Coral Gables Books and Books down here in Miami, he said that when Hannibal Rising was released in bookstores, it seemed everybody was in agreement that he had taken the series one book too far. And this was the verdict in some cases by people who hadn't even read it. They just kind of knew intuitively that after the third novel, which felt so final, it seemed that Harris had that Harris had kind of intuited exactly how much of that character, Hannibal Lecter, his audience was interested in reading about. Now, given the shit show of how this series unfortunately concludes, it'll be interesting to see how the legacy of these books goes down for the next generation of readers. 
Will people go on to remember the Hannibal Lecter series as a brilliant trilogy of novels and pretend that the shitty fourth one never happened? Or will that horrible fourth book have left such a potent aftertaste in the culture's mouth that it sort of eclipses the grandeur of its predecessors? The other night I was having a Skype chat with somebody I met on Hinge, and I think it was, I, I'm thinking of them technically as dates, and it's it's kind of ridiculous because I like shower and put on a decent shirt and like trim my beard and and brush my teeth before them. But as, as we were turning the corner from the second hour of conversation into the third hour of conversation, I was like, okay, I should wrap this up because I'm going to exhaust things. Um, I'm getting kind of tired. The whiskey is sort of heavy on my tongue. I'm about to say something stupid, I'm sure. But for some reason, probably just negligence, I kept chatting and she kept chatting and although the, the conversation definitely appeared to be ebbing at around the three hour mark it sort of sparked into some new kind of life at around three hours and 15 minutes and somehow the conversation was revitalized and it was sort of confessional and propulsive and there was laughter i finally called it quits when we'd been talking for just over four hours about one in the morning and when it was over i went into the living room and I sat with my roommate for a few minutes and I told him how I had been thinking I should stop the conversation at three hours but then for some reason I allowed it to go on for four hours and that I was glad that it had happened that way because it allowed the conversation ended on a better note than it otherwise would have and he just kind of nodded and then I went to bed and what I'm trying to say here is that it's not it's not like Hannibal Lecter has nothing to do with my love life. There goes another episode. The person in question would probably not want me to mention their name because once when she saw me at Passion, we exchanged some words and she was like, by the way, don't mention this in your blog. But this episode is sponsored not just by Adam and Eve, but by a listener who responded to like last, I was, it was disarming because at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that there's been some wonkiness with my mic and that I was, I was flirting with the idea of investing in a new one. And then I just got notified a couple days ago that someone had sent me a hundred dollars and it was this listener who's been listening for a long time now and who's been very encouraging all along and who i have run into on brickle twice once at passion and once at red bar the two places on brickle avenue which when society is in full motion i think i spend most of my time so to that listener who will remain anonymous to everyone else but who is considered a dear friend and and huge supporter now that i want to extend emphatic thanks because apart from just like the the convenience and the help of getting that donation point is it was unexpected but it was also a huge boost in confidence because obviously i do this for my own edification and i very much enjoy it but there is, you do reach a point where you want some kind of feedback or just some kind of gesture from the cosmos or from someone that like hey this is worthwhile i really enjoy it keep it up and i got that vibe resoundingly earlier this week so thanks again for the donation as for things that i've been up to this week that didn't make it into the episode uh i've been doing a lot of reading i always try to work in some reading but for the past week i've been having like sustained periods where i sort of sprawl out on the couch while my roommate is working and i just read for several hours at a time I finished reading Gilead, which accounted for the two quotes of the week last week, uh, and now I'm reading the sequel to it, which is like about his wife, and it's, it recounts the same events of Gilead, but from a different perspective. So I'm reading that, and it's very enjoyable, but it's also very highbrow and literary, and to sort of 
counterbalance that, I'm rereading The Godfather. I last read The Godfather when I was in middle school, and what stands out to me about the experience is that I bought it at a used bookstore called the Kendall Bookshelf, and I think I was 11 or 12 at the time, and my mom had taken me. And the guy who worked behind the counter was himself an avid reader, and he was constantly encouraging me to read things like Jaws and Agatha Christie. He wanted, he wanted to help me cultivate, like, a foundation of pop novels. And The Godfather, I didn't know at the time, but The Godfather is quite famous in, among other things, it's famous for a very graphic sex scene in like the first 30 pages. And so when I took that used copy of The Godfather up to the checkout desk, the guy looked at it and then he looked at me and then he looked at my mom and then he kind of leaned toward me and he says, you know, um, Mario Puzo writes these romance scenes. Um, I kind of just skipped them. They're not that interesting. He was trying... He was trying in a very covert way, like, he wanted me to have the book, he wanted me to be able to read the book, so he didn't say anything to my mom. I, I, it's only in retrospect that I appreciate sort of how he tried to navigate that, that moral crossroads of, like, do I let this kid read what's essentially a passage of pornography? Because if I tell his mom that that scene is in there, he won't be allowed to read the rest of the book. Now that sex scene seems kind of silly, but whenever I read it, I, I kind of smile and remember the dude. And yeah, in reading The Godfather, I realized that, like, it's a good book, it's propulsive, it's entertaining, but it's super pulpy, and the characters are, like, very thin and stiff. It's not, it's not great. It's not great writing. And also the material, like, the entire cast, of, the cast of characters is all, like, Irish and Italian, but there are so many Italian names that sometimes differ only by a couple of letters. And so sometimes when two characters with very similar names appear on the same page, amidst a cast of like 25 characters you start to realize like okay this would it would be easier to identify these people if i was looking at their faces as opposed to reading their names and th so that's part of the reason why i think the godfather lends well lends better to a cinematic realization than a literary one there are a bunch of reasons but it is definitely a better movie than it is a book and i don't think in the past few years i've lost total interest in going to the movies to see any adaptation of something that i've already read but I was, once upon a time, very stridently of that camp that thought that, like, every book is better than the movie that is made out of it. I no longer feel it completely that way. Like, I think that Fight Club is definitely a better movie than the book. The book is abhorrent. It's definitely the case with The Godfather, maybe A Clockwork Orange, which I, I mention only because it's recent. On, it's recently on my mind. When Francois Truffaut interviewed Alfred Hitchcock for that very for that book length interview um, called just called Hitchcock, he asked Hitchcock why he had never gotten around to making the adaptation of Crime and Punishment that he'd been talking about for years and years. And Hitchcock said that he came to the realization that a a masterpiece of any given medium is is a piece of art that sort of that utilizes all of the strengths of its medium, but the strengths of one medium don't necessarily translate to the strengths of another. His point was essentially that a, a masterpiece of a novel seldom translates into a masterpiece of a film. One person who believes without exception that every film adaptation of a novel is better than the book on which it was based is my friend Steve Donahue, the book critic who comes up all the time now. He lives in Boston and he has a wonderful YouTube channel. He uploads about 90 minutes worth of videos every single day. Most of that is because he is a professional full-time book critic, so publishing houses send him like... A dozen books every single day. So he unboxes those books on camera and he almost invariably has something to say about them but he's read the, the work of the author or he knows the subject very well. Steve reads for an average of 10 hours a day and he reads an average of about 150 pages an hour. So he goes through several books in the course of a day. I think his 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 record, he's every, his goal every year is to try to read more than he read the year before. 
which is always in the low four figures. And I think he said the only reason he's probably not going to be able to do it in 2020 is because publishing houses aren't sending out as many books as they previously had just because of the quarantine. He's really funny, really personable, really charming. He's been a huge influence in how I approach reading, how I approach writing, and I talk to him often. The forthcoming episode of the podcast is going to be a conversation that we recorded on Zoom um, a few days ago. And I told myself a while ago that I'm not going to do any more episodes where it's like just a full conversation. So I'm not sure if I'll break it up into two halves or if I'll, I'll open up with some kind of monologue and then close with an epilogue. One of the handicaps about doing conversations on the podcast is that I kind of only want to talk to people that I either admire professionally or people who are already my friends. But when I have a conversation with someone who's just my friend, I understand how like a listener coming to that, com- a-, a listener might not be incentivized to sit down, download, listen to the whole thing. As for other things, um, my roommate asked me yesterday what I'm thinking about the future, and I realized my thoughts of the future are bogged down with logistics that I haven't quite figured out yet, um, and the logistics are very intimidating, but I feel very good about the future. Not sure why, I just have positive vibes. I'm working hard, I'm enjoying myself, things are getting done, things are developing. It might well be the case that when this quarantine is over, I'm going to have to go back to working at a restaurant, I'm going to be working a 50-hour week, and then I'm going to be trying to sort of scramble a podcast and blog posts done in that time. But I don't know. I am simultaneous to working on uh, the podcast and watching movies. I am editing the novel that I finished writing in March, and it's a little better than I thought it was. The editing is going a little smoother than I thought it would. We'll see how that develops, but for now, I'm feeling good. It is the 1st of May, however, and if I have any resolution going forward, it is that I need to double down on the number of movies that I'm watching from the list. In the month of April, I only watched 14 movies off the list. I watched The Long Goodbye, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Towering Inferno, Saturday Night Fever, Chinatown, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, what is that, The Wicker Man, Don't Look Now, Amarcord, Monty Python, and The Life of Brian. Enter the Dragon, Papillon, Cabaret, and The Mother and the Whore, which is a three-and-a-half-hour French drama about a polyamorous couple, which I very much enjoy. Well, I guess it's not a polyamorous couple. A polyamorous trio. Polyamorous relationship. Anyways, that's what I'm up to. That's where I'm going. Thank you very much again for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Bye.